the way in American <laughs> that word is used is that I don't want to be beholden to anyone. That's the way it's said in American. And this book is sort of like, well, we are beholden to every to each other. We are beholden to the microbes in my gut, and I'm beholden to the wind through the trees. So how do we practice that, you know? This week on Interstates, poet Ross Gay on witnessing, gratitude, reading very long poems out loud, and a particular layup from the 1980 NBA Finals. That's all coming up after this. Okay, before you listen to this interview, it might be worth popping over to YouTube and looking up Dr. J's reverse layup. It is possibly the greatest basketball move of all time. I'm going to let you do that. Okay, got that in your head? Now come on back, because today's episode of Interstates is about a book-length poem that springs off from that move and then returns to it again and again. It's about what it meant for Dr. J to change directions in midair, to pivot in flight, and also what it means for us to witness that, and to witness black pain and black joy, and so much more. Today on Interstates, Ross Gay talks about his book-length poem, Beholding, with my colleague, host of Earth Eats, Kate Young. Ross Gay is the author of four books of poetry, against which, Bringing the Shovel Down, Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, which won the 2015 National Book Critics Circle Award and the 2016 Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, and Beholding, which won the Penn American Literary Gene Stein Award. His first collection of essays, The Book of Delights, was released in 2019 and was a New York Times bestseller. His new collection of essays, Inciting Joy, will be released by Algonquin Books in October of 22, and I expect we'll have him on again to talk about that. In the meantime, let me present this conversation Ross had with Kate Young in 2020 about sports, digression, and witnessing. Here's Kate. Could you talk first about your relationship with sports mm. and and athleticism growing up or yeah. even now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um I'm I'm working on essays right now about about sport and playing sport and it's so that sigh was like it's deep. It's so deep and so formative. And this poem I feel like is a little a little of that formative understanding of the world but you know I grew up playing football and basketball I played those sports in high school I played football in college I coached you know I played like sort of you know whatever you know good serious basketball until I moved here to Bloomington and then you know I kind of you know there's a little change in my life but I but I was coaching, I've coached, you know, I coached from the time I was about 24 until the time I was about 31, 32, 33. And coached serious varsity high school basketball. And I dream about basketball and football all the time. Um, like when you're sleeping. When dreams. I'm sleeping. I'm all, I often dream, if I dream about football, I often end up crying. If I dream about basketball, I often end up dunking a basketball. <laughs> <laughs> which which might give you some indication of my relationship yeah. to those sports, you know. 
Yeah, but you know, my dad was a basketball player, and, and our relationship, some of the closeness and some of the not closeness, had to do with uh, our our both being very invested in basketball and probably being invested in my playing basketball. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I I think about it a lot. It's deep. So it makes sense to me that I'd write at least one long poem that had something to do with basketball <laughs> or sport, you know? Yeah. So let's get into the poem itself. Yeah. Um, your book-length poem, Beholding, it seems at first, anyway, to hmm. be what I might call a close reading of a famous basketball move mm-hmm. um, by Julius Irving or mm-hmm. Dr. J. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who may not know, can you introduce Dr. J for us a yeah. little bit? Yeah, Dr. J, he played in the ABA, which was a kind of uh, a side league to the NBA. And the Pacers were actually were in the ABA for a while. But he played in the ABA, you know, through the 70s, and he was, you know, I don't know, he was the MVP of the ABA several times, maybe three times. And then he came to the NBA in 1977 or something. You know, so I was born in 74, so this is history to me. And joined the Philadelphia 76ers. I grew up, for the most part, outside of Philadelphia. So the Sixers was our was our team, and Dr. J was a hero to me. I know you asked about Dr. J, and now I'm turning it back to me. <laughs> but, but So Dr. J, you know, he was the first person who, in the slam dunk contest, dunked from the foul line. People think of Michael Jordan doing that. Dr. J did it. And then, <laughs> first. And, you know, there were things that he sort of did on the basketball court that were, you know, that were impossible before he did them. And then he imagined them into being... So I think of I think of him in that way, you know, like a profoundly beautiful basketball player, you know, lovely, lovely person too, seems like, but like a profoundly beautiful basketball player who was able to imagine all these ways of flying that that he had to imagine so that the rest of us could do it, you know, to the extent that we could do it or even witness it or even imagine it actually, mm-hmm. you know. So I'd like for you to read a passage for us. And I don't know if you want to say anything about the challenge of of reading just a passage (laughs) from this poem. (laughs) Yes, I should. So it's, you know, it's a it's a 95 or so page poem. And it's. um, It's like deeply digressive, this poem. (laughs) And, And I love how you called it a reading of a of a basketball move. I think that's exactly what it is. It's a kind of lyric reading of a basketball move. And by lyric, maybe I also mean something like, among the things that I mean is digressive. So as I'm looking at this two and a half second move or whatever it is, three second move, I'm sort of following these trains of thought or these associations. Like when the light does this, I think, oh, what about this? Or so it goes many places. And part of what is kind of amazing, fun, interesting, curious to me about reading this poem in like these fragments, like, you know, like is necessary in interviews and stuff like that, is that it's 
it's such a breath of the poem, <laughs> you know? It actually, now that I changed the beginning, it begins with a lowercase and, and it's, it kind of begins in the middle and it ends in the middle. Um, as Irving went higher and now, let me just describe the move though, like very, a very little bit. 1980 NBA Finals against the LA Lakers. That's a Lakers team with Jamal Wilkes, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So Kareem and Magic are definitely like two of the best players ever to play the game. And some people think, you know, our buddy Dave, one of them, um, that Kareem is the best player to have ever played basketball. He takes a dribble from the foul line extended and then he jumps. And then, you know, 100 pages later, something else happens. (laughs) Anyway, here it is. As Irving went higher and now began to extend his right hand in a precise arc, beginning precisely above his head, painting a broad and precise circle, not unlike Leonardo's Vitruvian man in his hula hoop of perfect proportions, if that little naked man wasn't little or naked and was palming a basketball and was flying through the trees. And I find myself again and again with my arm making the perfectly impossible circle again and again as I watch this clip on YouTube frame by frame, clumsily, on a computer with gummy keys and a post-it note covering the eye hole, scrawled, Discipline, on April 5th, 2015, at 1.48 a.m., again and again, thinking, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? Back to the first long step toward the baseline, the slight contact with Landsberger, the leap, again, long step, contact, leap, Again, long step, contact, leap. Again, long step, contact, leap. And I noticed this time in the background, which is granted hazy, this being old footage and my eyes a bit roomy for the now nearly two hours studying this clip. I notice at about the foul line, Silk, a.k.a. Jamal Wilkes, who, for the record, Coach Wooden, on the record, said was his best player ever at UCLA. Not Kareem and, oh, forever Bill Walton. And it's worthwhile to spend at least a moment with the name Silk, among the finest basketball nicknames, implying an ease and fluidity of movement, implying a difficult thing, a painful thing made to look easy, a fiber prized for its softness, its smoothness on the skin gathered from captive worms fed mulberry leaves. My court name was Beast, for what it's worth. And after a summer league game at the court at 10th and Lombard, where those in the know would slide through a gap in the grimace of the wrought iron gate to get in, a court that would be in time shut down in the most heinous of ways, removing the rims, the backboards lonely as gravestones, because of complaints to the city from the condo owners across the street who did not want to hear, God forbid, all that Negro gathering and celebration and care and delight every goddamn weekend morning, all that frolic and tumult, all that flight. Why can't they just go someplace else? A slightly older opponent told me, holding my hand and shoulder and pulling me close, he was holding me, Beneath the stately oaks overhanging the court, 
looking kindly down on us and time to time blocking a high arcing shot and wishing a leaf or two upon the ex-ballers on the sidelines reading the Philadelphia Inquirer, sipping coffee, debating and laughing or acting stupid like refs making calls. Oh yeah, he walked his ass off. The oaks dappling the old heads and their discourse. The best line of verse I will ever write. His shirt soaked through, staring at me to be sure I was listening, which I was, then as now. You ain't no beast. You ain't no beast. You're a man, you hear me? I noticed Silk's right leg and hip twitch before relaxing with what might have been the body's aw, shh. Though if you look closely, again and again, in a certain kind of way, again and again, you'll see also what might be a kind of light descending upon Silk's high cheekbones and forehead, again and again, unfurling almost across his face as he cranes his neck toward the soaring, until you'd almost swear tonight at 2.26 a.m. he was looking into a tree strewn with people, the human-shaped shadows twisting across his body, the legs swaying into his torso, a gray hand birding across his face, resting for a second at his ear, the pinky become a beak from which wheezed a tiny song. You'd swear, watching this sliver of the clip again and again, the shadow of one man's head seeming to lay itself on Silk's chest, for which, in the clip, you'll see Silk make of his arm a cradle, lowering his head as though to say, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry with which the tree makes a kind of choir, moaning, I'm so sorry, twisting its roots in the molder with what they've been made to do. Wait, wait, what am I looking at? What am I practicing? So I think it's pretty clear in that passage that... Um, this is and is not a poem about basketball. Yeah. We can see the pivots that you make here from one basketball court to another basketball court mm -hmm. and then from a court to the site of a lynching. Mm -hmm. And these kind of moves are happening throughout the poem, yeah. th throughout the book. And I'm thinking about the word pivot. Mm. Um, I'm thinking about it in basketball and also in just ways that it's come up for instance, in the, since the pandemic started, yeah. where people are, you know, a restaurant talks about how they have to pivot, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And so I'm thinking about a pivot as, you know, it's it's what you do when you're faced with the unexpected, mm -hmm. with the unforeseen. I didn't see it coming, you know, just kind of a, a pivot to survive. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on the word pivot and and these leaps yeah. that you take in the poem and, and what that means to you. Yeah, yeah. I love that word. And you may, might not know this, but do you know what pivot means in basketball? I feel like the little bit that I know about basketball, yes. There's a word, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you could talk about it. Yeah, I mean, like your pivot foot is the foot that you can, I mean, this is something to, <laughs> we could write another 20 pages, but the pivot foot is the, when you put, it's like a plant foot. You can, you got to keep that foot on the ground. If you pick up your pivot foot, you walked. Right. So there's some way. This is it's like an awesome metaphor that you've introduced. <laughs> like um, you got to be able to pivot. You know, there's this thing that 
a buddy of mine, Sam Stevenson, who's a really beautiful writer, Gene Smith Sink is his book. And we talk a lot about this thing, this idea of like lyric research and sort of like these little triggers or these little um, moments in something that you didn't know were there until you just listened to them for a second and then boom, you open a door or something and you fall through it. Mm. Um, and suddenly that's the poem. Or suddenly, oh, this is, I had no idea that this was even here. And now, and as you know, like that happens again and again in this book. I feel like that's, I don't know, if, maybe it is, maybe, I mean, it's a kind of digressive thinking, you know, which I can also point to other 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 artists who I just admire who kind of do that. Gerald Stern being one of them. John Coltrane being another one, you know. And I, I feel like there's something in the pivot. Okay, yeah, it's such a great question. I feel like there's something in those pivots which turn into these digressions that are probably making, and I'm, I'm saying this as a question, that are probably making some kind of assertion about what is happening anytime anything is happening. I think that's probably the case, which is to say I'm looking at a basketball move. But at the time, I'm looking at a basketball move. In fact, maybe I'm making an argument that, in fact, there's a dude on 10th and Lombard saying, you're not a beast, you're a man. And there's a basketball game going on in 1980. And there's, you know, my dad and mom on a beach in the Jersey Shore, you know. I think there, I think probably those pivots are probably, are, are making some kind of argument about that, you know. I think Patrick Rosal, I think he kind of, maybe in one of our conversations, he, he started pointing that out to me. But when you say it, and me hearing myself say it more now, I'm like, oh, I think that's one of the arguments that that pivot does. And and I feel also like, um, you know, like the more I write, the more parenthetical I'm becoming. <laughs> like everything I say, there's four parenthetical things behind it, you know, <laughs> or all around it. And I don't know what that is. Maybe that's like getting older, you know, or maybe that's, loosening up what one sort of believes is the story. It's it's something that happens in conversation all yeah, the time. Yeah. I mean Yeah. It Yeah, it it feels like it's more connected to how we really relate with one another and talk right. with one another. We never stay on track. Yeah. Yeah. And how often we're in conversation and just the other day it was happening with Stephanie and I and and she said like two words, and then she just blew it, blew by it, and then went on to something else. And how often we do that? And I was like, "What were those two words?" <laughs> and those two words were this really full story. I mean, probably the the bottom of the story, actually. <laughs> and but for the probably for the you know for something that we consider like a kind of for something we might consider like continuity, or meaning you know or you know or understanding maybe we like or the opposite i'm sort of i'm more inclined the more i write and read to understand that all of our thinking is or a lot of our thinking is actually complicated mm -hmm. and full and full of like absences and unsaids and you know 
and and so it's in a poem to sort of try to figure out ways to hold a glimmer of that. Yeah. You know. Well, I was thinking about like okay, when you said the thing about how your pivot foot has to stay yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Just to kind of keep going with the metaphor, because yeah. I, I was going to ask you, how do you know when maybe your leap has gone too far yeah. and your reader's not going to be able to stay there with you? Or were there any times where you you went somewhere in the poem and then you're like, you know what, I got to cut this. This yeah. I got to rein this in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was thinking that, you know, the pivot foot is that that thing that's got to stay on mm-hmm. the ground so you can move around beautiful. a lot, but yeah, you got to. Yeah. yeah, that's like the... Uh... You know, like the uh, the theme or something. If you're doing like my favorite things, like da 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 da, and then you can go for 25 minutes, but you got to come back. People are like, oh my god, he came back. He came back. Oh, that's right. We were doing favorite things. And I I am so moved by that. You know, in all kinds of ways. Like I really like long jokes. I love a long joke. A lot of people hate long jokes. But I love a joke that takes, like, you know, four days, and then eventually you come back and you, <laughs> you say it. Yeah, oh, you know. I also, yeah, I'm really interested in, like, that, just in terms of making something, and, like, how far that question you asked of, like, how far can you go before people are like, okay, this is no longer a poem about Dr. J. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> you know, it's not. And uh-huh. I had like okay. these, these moments, even in terms of like how to describe the move, which is itself so beautiful. The part of, I was, you know, one of the things as I was sort of trying to figure out how does this poem end, I did have to wonder if, if Dr. J at points returns to the poem, you know. That was part of my thing, like in terms of like, you know, honoring the digression or or the theme, the so-called theme, you know, does does he does the move sort of move on or something? Mm-hmm. So that that was that was one of my sort of contemplations and revision processes, actually. Yeah. You know, like I love like cantilevered buildings. <laughs> Yeah, and that shows up in the poem. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love it because, you know... um, (laughs) How far can you go? (laughs) How far can you go before the thing snaps off? (laughs) You know? I love that. I love that. If you're just joining us, we're listening to a conversation between my colleague Kate Young, host of WFIU's Earth Eats, and poet Ross Gay, upon the publication of his book-length poem Beholding a couple years ago. When we come back, we'll hear about what foiled Ross's plan to only ever read the whole poem when he was invited to readings. Stick around. In our states, Alex Chambers, we're listening to a conversation between Ross Gay and Kate Young about Ross's book, Beholding, which came out in 2020. Here's Kate. So I find myself reading this book out loud. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, maybe, I, maybe that's always true of poetry, but I feel like this poem and the way that it meanders, mm. the way you're shifting and pivoting from a basketball court to a beach mm-hmm. to, you know, gazing upon Dr. J in mm-hmm. flight to gazing upon bodies mm-hmm. hanging in trees. And and I sometimes needed to read it out mm-hmm. loud to follow it. I, I really had to hear it to know how to read it mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and I was wondering for you, 
how important is the performance of poetry and in particular with this poem and reading aloud and being in the presence of others, your body with other bodies, as, as you embody some of the gestures that happen in this poem. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking about like what what's lost with mm. doing virtual events. Yeah. Um, your book tour has been entirely virtual, yeah, I would yeah. think, due to the restrictions of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And I know that we adapt and that you've adapted and you make the best of the situation, but yeah. I was wondering if you could spend a moment just considering the place of physical presence in, in reading poetry. Yeah, that's yeah, that's like a real... I mean, one of the things is just in terms of like <laughs> how I was sort of imagining the life of this book and, and me with it is that I was sort of like was so excited because I was only going to read the whole poem. I was never going to read... <laughs> <laughs> I was never going to read like anything except the whole poem. And it takes, you know, an hour and 15 minutes or something to read, which is just too long for a poetry reading, you know. And, and it's another one of those things. It's like, how long can, how long can it go? Um, but I was really excited about that in part because it begged the question of like, how long can we stay together? It's sort of like that. And yeah, 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 not just how long can we stay in the same room, but like how long can someone's attention yeah. to how long can we stay in attention? Yeah, together? yeah, Sorry. which is hard, you know, and and, you know, like if you read an hour and 15 minute thing, <clears throat> you know, it's also a kind of holding to know that you're going to go on your digressions while I'm reading. And that is just like beautiful and part of the thing. But this kind of practice of hanging with each other, you know, hanging tight is is powerful to me and and it also felt it's it's, it's kind of just lovely because i had all these ideas i had all these expectations <laughs> and now i'm like well you know all right whatever <laughs> but it was like i was sort of i liked the way that that related to commerce actually i liked the idea of the non-excerptable <laughs> the non-excerptable meditation. And I still like the, I still like the non-excerptable um, meditation and I think it exists in all kinds of ways, probably in this book too. But that's all to say that I, I was and am really committed to the body, my body sharing the poem or bodies sharing poems, bodies, period, you know, poems, period. But my body sharing the poem in part because and it's why I'm interested in poetry readings, because, you know, my body is going to be different today than it was yesterday. And my body might not be a body tomorrow, you know, or might only be a body <laughs> tomorrow. And that is really fascinating and moving and, you know, the source really of all the contemplations in that poem. It's really like, you know, I mean the fact of our the fact of our dying is one of the to me that's one of the questions of joy and this poem in its way is trying also to sort of figure out you know how does our study how does our practice result in joy so i wanted to talk a little bit about the title of the book mm. beholding and you know one of the ways to read that is to behold, yeah. to, to look at something, to see. Um, and there are so many ways that looking is happening in this poem. We're looking at Dr. J. 
we're visually studying the move. And then there are also these photographs. There's three photographs in, in the book that, yeah. I mean, one of them is not actually in the book, but that mm-hmm. are being discussed. Yeah. You're doing like a, a, again, a close reading, a yeah. close study yeah. of of these photographs yeah. in, in the poem. Yeah. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about that beholding and that looking. Yeah. And and you're saying the looking at the photographs or... Yeah, I mean, all of the looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like one of the central questions of this book, and I say it, I mean, obviously it's one of the central questions. I keep saying it again and again. What are we looking at? What am I looking at? What are we studying? What's my practice? What are we practicing? And so the looking of Dr. J, the looking of this impossibly beautiful moment of flight is is itself a kind of practice. But all of the looking at the, all of the beholding is really, I think it's really asking this question of like, how does what, how does how we witness make the world? You know, Mm. how does how we witness make our lives? So, so, you know, I'm sort of, I'm sort of trying to figure that out by looking at all of these modes of looking, looking at all the evidence of looking, you know, like that picture that's on the cover of the book it's a grandmother and her grandson in Alabama in the 1930s that's maybe the title of you know maybe the title of the photo something like that I spent a long time looking at this photograph in this picture and one thing I think is interesting is that I get to looking at that photograph because I was at the in real life I was at the um, Library of Congress looking through the WPA photos, because I wanted to see what Arkansas in, what sharecropping in Arkansas in the you know early part of the century would have looked like, because I was right. looking for my great-grandfather, effectively. Mm-hmm. you know. And I came upon this photograph, which then became one of this, certainly one of the central images of the book, but you could almost yeah. be like, this is the pivot of the book, actually. It was an accident. I was like looking for my great grandfather. It was not an accident at all. (laughs) But I was looking for my great grandfather and then boom, here he is. But, you know, but in studying that photograph, I feel like one, I feel like what I'm really trying to do is studying how I'm studying the photograph, you know, studying how I'm studying looking. And I keep making these sort of asking these questions or, or making these corrections like, the grandmother looks like this, or rather maybe she's this, and mm-hmm. maybe it's this, or the little boy has in his hand, it could be this, or it could be that. So I think partly what I'm doing, all of this beholding, is, is really figuring out how how we witness makes the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's this little moment in this poem that I think is really interesting. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you that. You can read it or tell me, whichever works yes. for you. Yes. I think maybe I'll read it. This um, little boy in the photograph. So there's the grandmother and the little boy, mostly. And there's a little kid, a kid peeking out from the back. <clears throat> yeah. In his right hand, he shelters something almost floral. A rose, perhaps, pale yellow, or even, you think, maybe he holds the nave of a magnolia bloom. Or it could be, it's true, a few bills, a little money. But by enlarging the boy until he fills the field of my vision, 
I can see it's an origami bird he has made, and on which he might, with his left hand, be putting the finishing touches to the beak, so that the bird might better lullaby, the wings folded lightly against his fingers, the bird's sharp head twisted back toward the child, looking into his dream of the sky, etc. Um, yeah. Maybe it's an origami bird, you know? Yeah. Um, you decided at some point that it was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You yeah, landed yeah. on that. Yeah, and it was like a practice of looking, I think. And, yeah, that the poem was asking for, I think. Yeah. Or guiding me toward. Yeah. Yeah, the looking at that photograph is... Um, it's so interesting and, and engaging. I mean, I think I've told you before how much I love looking at, yeah. at an image and yeah. really like yeah. talking about it and yeah. thinking about it and um, studying it. Yeah. And, and I, I really appreciate that in, in this book, the, all the ways that you do that. And also the questioning of what is the violence we do by the looking or right. the, that the photographer's doing yeah. by capturing, yeah. Yeah. by shooting. Right, 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 right. These these images, the relationship, and then the relationship of us as viewers, and yeah. it, it's it's complicated and yeah. and important to think about. Yeah, and I should I want to say too that the title of this book used to be Flight, and then I read Christina Sharp's book In the Wake, and and she talks a lot about the hold, and she has this sort of turn at some point in the book about. Beholden. How do we be, be? How do we be beholden to each other? And after reading her book, I mean, to me, it's like this story. I'm going to tell the story because it's a little bit about the book. Where I went to um, Cincinnati, I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to Cincinnati. I'm going to find the end of this poem. <laughs> I was probably, you know, four years into writing it, and kind of like, I, it's just there's some there's some turn to this, and. I was deeply reading In the Wake, Christina Sharp's book. I had been reading Saidiya Hartman's book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. I was probably reading, or had been, The Undercommons, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. Those three at least. A lot of the book is in conversation with Araceli Skirmai's works, um, work, Patrick Rosal's work. There was a lot of this stuff, but I was deeply reading In the Wake, and so I go to Cincinnati, that poem, I just don't know if I'm going to get it. And I'm working for three or four days, kind of just got it like a little place and I'm working. And eventually I go to this little coffee shop and it's not like a, it's not like, you know, it's just like a, you know, kind of like a regular little fine little coffee shop. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I... And like, all right, this is the night before I'm leaving. Hope something happens, you know. <laughs> and I'm just having my little bad coffee. And, and um, I remember across the way was a like a writing group. And I could hear like kind of multi-generational. I could hear, you know, like kids seem like college kids. And then like people my age and maybe like, you know, someone more like in their 60s. Hanging around, working on stuff. And I'm just kind of drinking my coffee and then a couple of bells went into my head and 
one of them was the Allen Iverson talking about practice. We talking about practice. And then a couple things started to tick, 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 leading to this, this, this kind of connection between beholding and beholden, and which is absolutely indebted to Christina Sharp's book, In the Wake. And I feel like, I just feel like it's a beautiful thing that before the book, before I read In the Wake, the book is called Flight. Uh-huh. And that, to me, that remains one of the titles of the book. Flight, the many valences of flight. But after I read Christina Sharp's book, plainly, and it's in the margins um, of the book, of her book, my copy of her book, I realize, oh, what I'm talking about is beholding. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we be holding? You know, how can looking be an act of holding as opposed to an act of capturing, mm-hmm. et cetera? This is Interstates, presenting a conversation my colleague Kate Young had with poet Ross Gay about his book Beholding. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're listening to a conversation Kate Young recorded with Ross Gay a couple years ago upon the release of his book-length poem, Beholding. Kate wanted to talk about the major themes in Ross's work. One of your big questions is looking at Black pain Mm -hmm. and looking at Black joy. And you know, it's so it's so relevant to so many things that are going on mm-hmm. today in terms of the racialized violence, the police violence yeah. against black bodies, the yeah. killing of black bodies, and the looking mm-hmm. at that yeah. has been the spark right. for this social unrest, yeah. this um, uprising that's happening in, yeah. in, in our nation. Yeah. Um, this Some call it a racial reckoning, yeah. but it's so connected with the looking. Yeah. And I know that, you know, a, a lot of people are asking questions about what that looking does. Yeah. And do you have any thoughts about that, just sort of where this book lands in that? In that? Yeah. yeah. I think the book definitely lands in um, in a kind of recognition again that it it is there's a moment in the poem where early in the poem I think I where the, I read it where I'm watching something happen I'm watching Dr. J I'm watching the most beautiful moment of flight <laughs> and my body starts doing it mm-hmm. my body starts doing it. Like I just, with, without even noticing it, I'm doing the same thing that Dr. J is doing with my body. I think that's an argument, or, or it's a question, say. One of the questions that the poem asks about how what we witness, how and what, what we witness does to our bodies, you know? And... Uh, so I, I land on I land on you know it's very complicated <laughs> you know and there are all these modes of witness and I think there are modes of witness that are committed to taking care of us and there are modes of witness that are committed to there are modes of witness that require violence that they exist and that's 
That's tricky. Yeah, it feels like something that you grapple with yourself in yeah. your own practice. Like, yeah. you know, th- that question, what am I practicing? It's yeah. just such a powerful question. And yeah. it, it it just feels like you're grappling with it throughout the poem. Like, yeah. when you're looking at certain images, yeah. how are you looking at this? Or when you see something yeah. that's not there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you're asking yourself, you know, here I am wishing this right. on this little boy. Right. Watching right. this. Right. Uh, it, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. really um, yeah. interesting to see that kind of internal, you know, questioning of, of, of what you're doing, why right. you're doing it. Right, right, right. Like in the poem, I think I dreamed it upon that boy. Yeah, dreamed it. Yeah. And the boy was just sitting there. He was just sitting there watching or not watching <laughs> in the poem, Dr. J, uh, at, at, at Rucker Park. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's sort of like, you know, it's, there, I, maybe there's a bunch of, maybe there's not a central question. There's many questions, many central questions <laughs> in the poem. And one of the, one of the questions is like, how, I mean, how, as an artist, I guess, but as a person, how do you, as an artist, say, how do you make, sometimes or often about pain without making pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very important question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and even, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about, like, the looking at what happens to George Floyd yeah. has a powerful effect in the world that is positive and right. could lead to change, right. Um, right. even as it's doing violence for people to be watching it. Right. And it's and I'm I'm thinking also about the photograph that you talk about in in the book that that you wonder about. Right. You don't include it in the book, and you wonder about the violence of looking at it. Yeah. And and yet, you know, fire escapes. Right. Were regulations around fire escapes exactly. were changed because exactly. of that photograph. Exactly. And so yeah. it's like, how do you yeah. Reconcile that. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Like, what, what is our looking for? That's one another one of the questions, you know. What is our looking for? Um, because we clearly need to witness. Like, there's no doubt about that. We need to witness. So how does how we witness? What is the work that how we witness? What is the work that our witness does? Or how does how we witness do work? Yeah. <clears throat> I think also one of the questions, you know, like tied up with those other questions in terms of being a, someone, you know, as a, no, let's say period. I'm, I, I'm thinking a lot about writing and making art, but I'm also, I think I'm thinking period, is that if, if your practice becomes reliant upon horror, it's kind of like, well, what's your relationship to horror? And that's a question about the soul. Like, you know, like how it seems to me that part of our practice needs to be figuring out how to witness in the ways that, that we need to witness, but also wondering about, I think I am maybe back to being, thinking about making stuff, wondering about if my subject is brutality, 
do I need brutality to have a that's my subject very much the way when when I think of people who do like you know they call it like mass incarceration studies I'm like that's that sucks how about abolition studies you know what I mean how about like um free people studies. There's some element of that in this, in this, you know, question too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I see what you're saying. So if your study relies on almost the continuation of That's my subject. These violences. This is what I study. It's what I study. It's what I study. If if it's what you study, you're going to get really good at it. I mean, that's such a powerful thing to me in watching that. And in, in someone, someone pointed it out to me in a reading that, you know, like something about embodiment and it made me think, oh, damn, right. In the, in the poem I'm talking about, my body becomes the thing that I'm studying. Like that's, it is a question. Does your body become the thing that you're studying? I suspect it does, you know. So, yeah, then that question of what am I practicing becomes pretty important. Yeah. And yeah. and so it's really a it, it needs to be kind of a shift in the way yeah. that you're studying. Yeah. What's central to it? If your body becomes it, <laughs> you yeah. might want to be careful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cuz you can witness with the vision, you know, holding the vision of or it seems like that that might be one of the practices to witness fully witness with the vision of care you know, with the vision of love. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You already spoke to something that I wanted to ask you about, which was Christina Sharp's work, but also just, you know, your acknowledgments are are nine pages long. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm thinking about the, the concept of debt and mm-hmm. and the the way that you kind of touch on that a little bit, mm-hmm. talk about it a little bit in um, maybe it's in the acknowledgments. Mm. So I was wondering if you if you would be interested in talking about that a little bit or yeah, I would love to. That's that's one of the questions too of this book, you know, and it's like the sort of the very closeness of like you know if you were saying beholden, you know, just in conversation, beholding and beholden are basically the same word so so one of the questions is like is it possible to behold one another such that we're constantly practicing our beholdenness to one another and um, I mean I feel like that whole book is trying to figure out and I mean is is working toward this this in, in working toward a theory maybe of like looking and witnessing and, and beholding, it's also, it's so tied up in a kind of also a, a kind of theorizing or believing in this thing, like you said, debt or this thing, which uh, another word for that is gratitude, you know? So, and when I am talking about gratitude, I want to be very adamant that I'm talking about a kind of profound entanglement 
by which we understand and we practice understanding because it, I think it is difficult for a lot of us to, to believe it. But where we practice understanding that we are not without everything else. We are not. And the, the, uh, the book is trying to, I think, is trying to, among other things, trying to figure out how that kind of a life infused with or, or an inquiry infused with that kind of understanding that I am not here without you. Mm-hmm. To the, you know, the micro, to the macro, there's all these, like, all these, you know, the kid in the poem and the person in the poem gets held a lot. Like, you know, my buddy dancing is always mm-hmm. holding me. The dude at the court is holding me. My mother is holding me. My father is holding me. My brother is holding me. Like, you know, all of these people, some of whom I'm related to and um, many of whom I am not, are holding me. And to be held like that and to practice witnessing that kind of having been held like that, I think maybe is also a way of expressing this debt or, again, gratitude. You know what I mean? And beholden, being beholden to. Being beholden to. Like practice, the practice of the beholden. I think, that's, I think that's what I say. And that's sort of like, you know, what Christina Sharp gave me. Like the practice of the beholden. You know, the way in American... <laughs> that word is used is that I don't want to be beholden to anyone. That's the way it's said in American. And this book is sort of like, well, we are beholden to every to each other. We are beholden to the microbes in my gut, and I'm beholden to the wind through the trees. So how do we practice that? You know, which is, it's practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Ross Gay, for spending this time with me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I learned a lot talking with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Ross Gay and Kate Young. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. All right, time to go somewhere and listen. That was the sound of sand pouring from a shoe at the Indiana Dunes in June 2022. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Keep listening. Keep listening.